going to be starting just by giving my own, uh, sharing some of my own story, really, my own experience of The Dark Knight. Um, I certainly did not, in the middle of it, foresee that I would be in this position. And um, I had the interesting experience of publishing a couple of essays about my experience um, maybe a year, not that long ago. And uh, it got a tremendous, particularly the first one got, it was on a website called Transformation, not a big website, and 20,000 people read it in the first few days. Um, and, and a lot of people wrote to me uh, asking, Can you, how did you get through this? And after writing many individual emails, I, um, I wrote a second essay. So I'm going to read some from that. The, the fact that, that it resonated so much spoke to me about, okay, well, clearly the experience that I've gone through and have been going through and I'm continuing to process is not unusual. It's not an isolated experience. And, um, and again, given, given where we, we stand as a culture at this moment, it makes sense that many of us are going through experiences like that. Um, so for me, you know, for me, my experience with The Dark Knight began in India. And I'm going to be doing some reading from, because I think I, I put it fairly well in, the, in these essays. So may as well just recycle here. Um, this, this began for me in India at, uh, at the age of 33. I had just finished graduate school, and I'd received a Fulbright scholarship to work on a novel in Varanasi in India. And after a couple of weeks there, strange things began to happen. I found, I found myself assailed by a rising tide of anxiety. There had been some strong prior hints, but in Varanasi I careened right off the cliff I'd unwittingly been skirting. My stomach, which had survived the on-the-cheap vagaries of five continents, fell apart, and two courses of antibiotics couldn't put it back together again. I found a lump in my breast. I couldn't find an apartment. And the fear just kept growing. Then I stopped sleeping. And I fell into a hole the likes of which I'd never suspected existed inside me. Over the following weeks, I began to see the deep fracture in my life. Most of my days had been dominated by drive and adrenaline. I was a, one of your sort of fairly typical overachiever types. And then I would tend to the spirit by going on retreat, slamming on the brakes for compensatory periods of silence and stillness. On these retreats, which I sat regularly, what I would see was just below the surface was this huge well of anger and fear um, and a fatigue that was so deep that it was frightening. I couldn't, I couldn't really face it. Um, in India, I hit physical exhaustion. This was after graduate school and after really many, many years of running and pushing. Um, and psychological overwhelm. And I had a breakdown. And I saw, you know, I saw in, in this experience that my own constant running and pushing and achieving were really a culturally applauded sublimation of the fear and the rage that I wrestled with on retreat. So in other words, these things had been in me and they came up in retreat um, and we live in a culture where um, if we sublimate this into drive and into achieving into doing and productivity and we define our worth that way we actually get a lot of affirmation but I'd never actually learned how to rest and um, this had taken a physiological toll in the form of adrenal exhaustion 
my experience of breakdown, I, I began to see that the fracture in my life between um, you know, regular life and retreat periods or practice periods um, was, was really a mirror of the fracture in my own psyche, which had its roots in events that had happened many years earlier. Uh, and so for me, a lot of the material that came up in my experience of breakdown was related to ongoing childhood trauma uh, that I had really just pushed away and repressed. And, and it's interesting because, again, this would come up in, in my meditation practice, would come up in sitting retreats, and then I would kind of bottle it, okay, well, that's where that is. You know, that's where I deal with it, right? But it, um, it wanted more attention, right? Um, and it hit me on every level. So nervous system, body, mind, spirit, I just was wiped out. So I ended up cutting my Fulbright short and returning from India to navigate my way through a breakdown. It was not pretty and felt to me as if everything good inside me had been tossed on one of Varanasi's funeral pyres. My creativity, my confidence, my capacity for happiness. Who was this petrified, tortured woman, this ghost of my former self? For months, I was so exhausted that getting dressed felt onerous. I had to scrape together all of my courage to go to the grocery store. I attended a few week-long meditation retreats that were more or less extended encounters with unabated terror and self-loathing. Pretty intense, I remember feeling, sitting in the hall, I'm on fire, I'm on fire, I'm on fire. Is everybody else feeling this? It can't be. And the five years following my return resembled a drunken waltz. Fall down and get back up, again and again. The falls gradually growing less paralyzing as I learned how to fall and how to relax both my body and my expectations. So there were periods of really of intense suffering, um, alternating with periods where I was sort of was semi-functional and even able to work a little bit. Um, and gradually, again, this was sort of, it kind of went like this, you know, and stayed down here for, okay, okay. Gradually growing more functional. Um, I had tremendous shame and self-judgment around this. Again, coming from a period of being kind of quite an overachiever to, I remember what you said at one point, a spectacularly underachieving, um, you know, and really just, again, not, not, not even just leaving the house was a big deal. Um, so there was almost no framework that I found out there for how to hold this other than pathology. And, uh, you know, within the West, this right, so um, I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder with, with occasional panic attacks, um, medication. Uh, these were the ways to, to kind of deal with something like this, right? You fix it, you get rid of it, and you keep going. And um, it didn't feel to me like enough. It felt like there was more. And thank thankfully, my background in practice pointed me to the fact that obviously there's more going on here. And there's more that needs attention. Um, there were a lot of, there were many elements that carried me through, and, and we'll be speaking, we'll be, we'll be speaking more to this in the afternoon period. Um, but one crucial factor for me was, and I think for for everybody I know, for all the people I've met subsequently going through experiences like this, was support. It was really having um, having people in my life, and generally this came from spiritual teachers 
who said to me, you know, Marisa, what you're going through, it's actually healthy. It's actually normal. And, and it's actually a key part of your growth. And just to hear that reflected to me in a period where it felt like nothing was normal, I'd completely lost myself. Everybody around me seemed to be functioning really well and fitting into this kind of crazy society. What the hell was going on? To have the few people who reflected to me at key points, that message was absolutely crucial. Um, yeah, this was usually spiritual teachers where there were other frameworks other than what we find in the West for how to hold an experience like this, how to hold a dark night. Um, and Donald, my dear friend over here to my left, um, was one of these, someone who provided a regular touchstone during, during this, this multi-year experience, um, continuing to ground me in the larger arc of my experience where I felt you know, essentially stuck in chaos most of the time, stuck in confusion not having a larger storyline. Uh, if there was any abiding thread I, I wrote here, any golden string out of the opaque maze, it was learning to hold myself ultimately with compassion. This was one of the, I would say, the two biggest lessons I pulled out of, out of this experience. So at its worst, when my nerves were shrieking and my body literally feeling like it was on fire, I would put my hands over my heart and call myself sweetheart, angel, darling. I would tell the rage that it had a good point. I would tell the fear that I wasn't running away this time. And I would tell even the hatred, of which there was a tremendous amount coming up, that it was welcome here. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, said the Buddha, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. I learned in this period to include myself in my compassion. I learned to hold myself like a screaming infant and give to myself as to a starved child. This was not due to any great ability of my own. I simply had no choice. If I didn't learn to be patient with myself when I could hardly function, I'd never have healed. It was that or my life. <clears throat> there were moments when I fervently wished I was dead, that some disease would just come and take me, some accident would wipe me out. Yeah, I remember lying in a tree I, would, I spent a fair amount of time in trees because they were really grounding and just wishing, like, oh, take, I'm, you know, just, I'm done, take me. And, I, and I'm noticing, I mean, I notice even now, speaking about it, there's a, a fair amount of emotion that comes up for me. And still some shame. And there's still some remnants of, oh, my God, I'm telling this to everybody, <laughs> you know. It's, uh, it's interesting to, to note that, you know, there's, that, 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 that there's still these resonances. Um, but I didn't die, at least not in the traditional sense, and coming out on the other side, I marveled at the gifts that I had been given. My experience of the dark night ultimately led me to the limitations of personal will. You know, I had, I had pushed my way, I had willed my way through, through, through 33 years. And, and, I, and I'd done what, you know, in, in, this, in this culture, I, I looked like I was doing great, right? 
it didn't work with this. It did not work. And gradually there came a trust in something deeper, an increasing relaxation of my body and my mind and an opening to the wider dimensions of life. And ultimately, and this was the most astonishing thing, was that life just kept growing bigger and bigger. And what I discovered coming out of it was that there was, I was, there was just so much more. Um, I was so much happier. Uh, there was a kind of flow to things, tremendous amount of gratitude, um, just joy and, and embodiment too, in ways that I, I thought I was embodied. I did a lot of da- you know dance and movement, and I uh, totally new experience of, of what that meant. Life got much, much bigger and wider and deeper, and it's I would never have predicted that. Um, at some point, many of us will be broken by life whether in ways obvious or hidden. If we stay soft, if we stay open, the heart will expand and the mind will grow clear. I've, come, I've, I've seen that for myself. Breaking and healing, I have come to believe they are different movements of the same underlying love. Sometimes that love must be ferocious to wake us up which leads me into the collective. So for, for those of us who are paying attention, we are entering a collective dark night. You know, and, and, and things that we thought unshakable are, are being shaken, right? Much like my own experience, things that I never even thought could break, broke, right? Systems and institutions are beginning to crack. Ecosystems are changing before our eyes and the scale of environmental loss is prodigious. It can be terrifying to watch the dissolution of things that we believe have kept us safe. It can be excruciating to see the destruction of things that we love. (coughs) Faced by these circumstances, it may take every ounce of strength we possess not to collapse into fear or explode into rage. But even as the skies darken, there are considerable gifts here. And that's part of what we want to point to today. We are being offered a superb opportunity to develop the strength and the wisdom we will need to rise to the occasion. So just as you've likely noticed, things seem to be getting, you know, the, the proverbial shit is hitting the fan, excuse my, excuse my language. Um, I cursed a lot during my dark night. <laughs> a lot of just cursing. Um, so you might have noticed that while things are getting darker, there's also a tremendous amount of light rising in response. It's actually really important to pay attention to this, right? And and you can see this in uh, again. I, I spent my twenties running around the country as an activist. I never thought Americans would be mobilized the way things, the way people are rising now. The Me Too movement the marches, the, just the general consciousness rising, I'm amazed at what's happening. Um, the writer and the mystic and, and the sacred activist, a- a- Andrew Harvey, he speaks of how in order to move through what, what, the, what is a collective dark night, ultimately we need individuals who have themselves passed through the dark night and, and are, are able to bring what we've gained from that journey to our collective experience. In other words, what you're going through now or what you've been through is key learning for what we're all gonna need. You bring a tremendous amount of gifts with you. 
Um, we bring, as Harvey says, we bring the energies and the long-term vision to this journey that we're on. Um, ultimately, and this is actually something Donald would say periodically to me, you would say, um, you don't, Murray said, you're doing this work for all beings. And I was like, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I just need to get through this. And, and, and actually, there's a teacher, Jeannie Zandi, who says, you know, when you're in the middle of this, all you need to do is survive it. So we're, we're giving you a lot of tools here, a lot of suggestions, a lot of ideas, a lot of hopefully inspiration. But at certain points, for me, it was just like one minute at a time, one second at a time. There were days where it was okay. Okay, it's three o'clock. Wow. I'm making it through. <laughs> so, so you know, there's there's a, a, a wide range here of degrees, but um, uh, at some moments it's just getting through, right? But ultimately, uh, you know, I, I believe this very firmly because I've seen it for myself. Not only, by the way, in, in me personally, but in many others I've I've, I've met subsequently who have found me. Um, uh, we do do this work for all beings. Donald was right. <laughs> Um, and the gifts that we can reap from our rendezvous with the dark will ultimately be bestowed on others. So we are needed, we who can face the dark. It's, um, it's, it's really exciting to me. We didn't think that there'd be a, a whole lot of, we didn't think it would be this many takers. So the fact that it sold out and there were actually, you know, we'll be doing it again. There were people who wanted to come who couldn't make, who couldn't come. To me, it's tremendously good news. Um, we are needed, we who can face the dark. Um, and at the same time, keep faith in the light. So uh, I think I'll hand it to you at this point. Okay. I was going to say a little bit about the framing of the dark night, but why don't why maybe don't I'll I do that? Do maybe that? I can yeah. I can ask you to add like the a point here and there. Sounds good. Okay. All right. You know, thanks, Marisa. Yeah. Uh, maybe we can just take a pause. Yeah. Thank you. Maybe just a short pause, let that sink in. So, uh, further applause to our Technical support. We got the yeah, PowerPoint yeah, going yeah, right yeah, at the yeah. right at the last possible moment. Are the mics working though? Uh, <laughs> I think so. Yeah. I yeah, don't yeah. have a. Yeah. Yeah. Have to turn them down because they're going into the great hall, and then you can project. We'll figure it out at lunch. Okay. <laughs> so I want to follow up from uh, what Marisa shared, and to share a little bit about the uh, further. Oh. Mike's dead. I know. <laughs> there you go. Is it on now? It is, yeah. but it's, you know, I was trying to get the other hall. I think they're going to just make some, what's happening is your mics are playing in the great hall. They need views of the dark night. So what should I do now? Should I use? I think the suggestion was that you two, she says it's the smaller of the two rooms, just project without microphones until we get sorted out. Not to use the hand mic? Either one. Okay. Great. Um, anyone who does have hearing issues, anyone need to come up closer? Okay, so 
think we're okay. So I want to give a little bit further uh, of the framework that we're using to approach the dark night and to give some examples of uh, cultures and traditions where something like the dark night has been understood. And this can give us some reference points. And I'll also talk some about my own experience. I think my own personal experience related to the dark night, I think I've had more multiple shorter dark nights, you know, that, that have, might last for whatever, uh, a week or a period in a retreat or, uh, you know, a month or something, but not the kind of protracted experience. And I've also, I've worked with uh, several people um, who are in the midst of something like the dark night, and probably with uh, Marisa the, the, the longer time, yeah. Over quite a few years, wasn't it? It was probably... And um, so we want to give this framework, use the term the dark night, and we're, we're going to use it in a more general way, not as a very precise term. It has a more precise term in the traditions of Christian mysticism out of which it came. Some of you know it came from St. John of the Cross, who lived in the 16th century. And I'll talk about him just briefly in, in a few moments. But we're going to use the term more generally. And um, some of the characteristics are those of uh, periods which can be triggered by many, <coughs> many things. Can be triggered by loss, can come out of nowhere. There can be some kind of uh, um, opening to a spiritual experience which cannot be held well, which is too much, in a sense, for the system, or the energy that's coming up in one's body is too much. It's the well-known uh, Kundalini-type experiences. And there are a variety of triggers that can be there. Uh, one book that been important to me that some that's on we have a reading list I think which is out there which will which we should have uh, certainly by lunch uh, some of you may know the work of Mirabai Starr who is a translator of St. John of the Cross lives in New Mexico she wrote Caravan of No Despair a memoir of loss and transformation and actually I think on the day that the proofs came for her translation of the dark night of the soul uh, by St. John of the Cross her 14-year-old daughter was killed in an automobile accident. And she went into a several-year period. And, you know, she had been a spiritual practitioner for a long period of time. Everything dried up. The words had no meaning. And she could barely function. Some of, a lot of the characteristics that uh, Marisa mentioned. And again, we don't have good frameworks in the West. Right? Typically, there would be pathologizing, and if we tell it to certain friends, there'd be fear, and they would you know, project on us, and we'd take it in and take in their projections, and you know that, right? You, you know all of that. And so we want to point to, you know, give elements of a framework that can be helpful. And again, the 
suggestion is that this, this dark night can be a great opportunity. It's distinguished from simply having a hard year. It's not the same thing as just having a hard time, right? And it's not the same thing as ordinary depression, right? There are other elements, and you know, we'll see partly in our stories how we can make those distinctions. And of course, they, they intermingle because there can be depression related to the dark night. So it's not, it's not easy. And again, we're, we're using this in a general and somewhat exploratory way. There's not a, there's not a whole, you know, we haven't had decades of people looking at this and out of that some consensus framework exists, right? Okay, so let me, um, let me give a little bit on the history of this. And so talking, and Marisa, you can add in comments here and there. Um, look at, we'll look at the dark night as it's appeared in these three broad traditions, and particularly, particularly the, the term comes from St. John of the Cross. Uh, <laughs> very interesting writer, like a deeply, deep, deeply passionate spiritual seeker. Probably, almost certainly, although he was a Catholic mystic, he had Jewish and Muslim ancestry, lived in Spain. Very interesting figure. And he um, was drawn at a young age in his schooling to uh, a life of the spirit. He became a, a Carmelite fri prior, friar, I guess. Uh, and at a time when there was a lot of change occurring, he entered into the uh, Carmelites, which was a reform movement uh, led by ter another great being, Teresa of Avila. Actually, he was the Carmelites were existing, but he was part of the Reformation. There was a reform Carmelite movement, and there was a lot. There was actually a lot of tension. There were people who were wanting to go back to a more pure spirituality, similar to what had occurred in, among some of the hermits in the desert in Egypt uh, shortly after the time of Jesus. And so they were, there was uh, quite a bit of tension at the time. And actually, uh, when St. John was, uh, or when John was uh, about 35, he was part of this reform movement and he was kidnapped by people who were opposed to the Reformation, who were also monks. <laughs> Imagine this, you know, you know, crime scene among the monasteries. <laughs> you know. And he was brought to a monastery, and this is a famous painting by El Greco, who was brought to a monastery where he was held in a dungeon, more or less, for nine months. Some of his early writing on the dark night of the soul came out of this experience. Right? And he was not permitted anything to write. Eventually, so he was smuggled some paper. He was, he was flogged daily. Again, these were fellow monks doing this to him. And eventually, so a sympathetic jailer helped him to escape after nine months. And he was able, he was able to leave. Sometime shortly after that experience, he wrote The Dark Night of the Soul. Uh, Mirabai Star again has a translation. I have an older translation. It's a, 
It's a fairly short book. I'm going to give a very, very brief summary of it. Generally, generally speaking, there were two phases of the dark night. The first is called the night of sense. And one of the important characteristics for St. John was this was something that happened to people when they were fairly developed. This was not something which happened to what he called the beginner. Uh, it was an intermediate or advanced uh, state. And in, in the night of sense, one sense of spiritual connection uh, dries up all of the doctrines, cease to have any meaning. Um, and this is a quote from John, practices become tasteless, God weans them. And he uses the metaphor of the spiritual practitioner being weaned from the breast so that one can, as it were, be on one's own. God weans them so that they become strong. This seems very strange. Everything seems backward. This is a time of purification and surrender, being in the holy darkness of unknowing. Again, this is, you know, he's an amazing figure. You read his work and he has other texts, the ascent of Mount Carmel. And, and I have, a, some of you may know, uh, Lorena McKinnett did a whole song based on his, his basic poem. Maybe I'll play that later. Have that. Some of you know Lorena McKinnett, the musician. Beautiful song called The Dark Night. And she, she puts uh, St. John's uh, poem to music. And what is in Spanish the, the term uh, is? La noche del alma oscura. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, you know, the word for dark is obscura. Mm, obscura, right. Yeah. Another quote from John, the soul must surrender into peace and quietude even if there is a sense of wasting time and being lazy. Doing nothing accomplishes great things, yeah. right? But that's not what we're thinking at the time, especially in this culture, right? You know, probably maybe a little easier in the 16th century if you're doing nothing, right? Yeah, and, and I, would, I, would just, I would just add, it's like my experience of doing, I remember some, a teacher saying to me, it might feel like you're doing nothing, but there's so much being metabolized in you right now that you need to do nothing so that it has room to work its way through. So this is a place of doubt, but also the need is to be with things as they are, says John, rather than what we think should be happening. Then some people go through the first part and come to the second. John said not all people get there. Um, some people come out of the first phase, but the second phase is even more difficult. This is called the night of spirit. All of the religious and spiritual concepts have been dismantled. It may look like a crisis of faith and may last, John says, for years. We enter into radical unknowing. He says it's like being in the belly of the whale in the story of Jonah without actually knowing whether we're ever getting out. This is the more protracted version of the dark night. Eventually, being with the dark may open into illumination, and there at first may be glimmers. And I can remember, you know, that's your experience very much. Like there were often glimmers. There was some sense of, oh, look, look outside. The world is shining. Something is the, the bright. Ve the yeah. veil kind of thinned. Yeah. So. Yeah. There are glimmers, there are also yearnings. There are the, the two aspects of it. And in, in John's text, ultimately the dark night opens to illumination. 
he says, without the labor of the intellect, in other words, one's not thinking it out, the soul may find spiritual sweetness. The purification is not over. The essential part is still to come. What we have to do is keep our eyes shut and walk the path in darkness. Hmm. How's that for guidance? You mean surrender? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then this last line, amazing line, the soul walks to God through human unknowing. I don't know, that's a lot. You, you want to hear about shamanism too? <laughs> it's a lot. So I think I'll, I may I may not do all of this. It's a, you want to maybe briefly address the shaman, yeah. shamanic and Buddhist? Oh, oh, another one from John. Uh, I, I, I may be brief on some of this just for the sake of time. John said, you can only understand by not understanding. Mm -hmm. To plunge into the unknown, I entered into unknowing and remained there knowing nothing. This place transcends all thought. I suddenly understood sublime things. I let myself down to the arms of unknowing. Knowing by unknowing is mercy. This mercy transcends all thought. Mm -hmm. And the, you know, you can hear, he, he's an amazing poet as well. You know, there, there are some other beautiful texts that you can read. He's quite a figure. I think he really, um, even though he's speaking in a Christian framework, these words are not framed a lot by doctrine. They're really accessible, I think, to us now. That's where the term comes from. Right? And then a second model is in shamanism. I'm relying some on the work of Joan Halifax. Uh, the shaman is someone who enters into the path of being a healer and a seer through suffering. This is from her. The most usual pattern of shamanic initiation in older cultures involves the experience of a catastrophic encounter with psychological and physical suffering. The encounter with illness, suffering, and death not only opens the sacred world to the shaman, it also provides an experiential ground for the work of social, personal, and environmental healing that the shaman will later be doing. So I'm not saying this is the same as the dark night, but there seems to be, it's the same territory, isn't it? So we may not have it quite like the shaman. You know, we do our retreats at Spirit Rock, really wonderful meals. <coughs> you, know, you have your own thermostat in the rooms. Okay, here's, here's, here's the sequence for the shaman. An experience of separation or isolation from society and culture that often go off into solitude. An encounter with extreme mental and physical suffering, including the subjective sense of being eaten or dismembered by local wildlife, being <laughs> burned, cooked, or afflicted with disease. Okay, so an encounter with death, an experience of nature transmission with creature, ancestor, spirit, god, or element, and yet a return to life, sometimes by way of the celestial realm, with the world tree or bird flight being featured, and return to society as healer. Again, gifts coming out of this. So I'll just maybe go briefly through. I gave a few examples of shamans. This is from a 20th century shaman named Ijukarjuk lived in the, you know, in um, what would be, I think, northern Canada, um, what we would call Eskimo. All true wisdom is only to be learned far from the dwellings of men out in the great solitudes and only to be obtained through suffering. 
Privation and suffering are the only things that can open the mind of humans to those which are hidden from others. This is a more, uh, I think, a Siberian shaman. Before I commenced to shamanize, I lay sick for a whole year. I became a shaman at the age of 15. The sickness forced me to this path, showed itself in a swelling of my body and frequent spells of fainting. When I began to sing, however, the sickness usually disappeared. So a year-long process here. And then the last example, this is a Huichol shaman from uh, what we call Mexico, whom uh, quite a lot of Westerners studied with. Some of you know, may know Premdas, Brant uh, Secunda. Um, he lived to be 110. And this is his summary of his own journey. I have pursued my apprenticeship for 64 years. During these times, many, many times have I gone to the mountains alone. Yes, I have endured great suffering during my life, yet to learn to see, to learn to hear, you must do this, go into the wilderness alone. For it is not I who can teach the ways of the gods. Such things are learned only in solitude. So again, a different framework, but something about this opening through very challenging experiences. Let's see, so Marisa, in terms of time, mm-hmm. um, should I go briefly maybe through the Buddhist examples? Yeah, I think Because I, I wanted, this, I don't know if you can, this is a little bit small print. I wanted to interpret the life of the Buddha as involving aspects of the dark night. You know, the Buddha, and I'll, I won't go through all these points, I'll just summarize briefly. And maybe I can have this available, the, the slideshow, have that available to people after, you know, after our day. Um, so, as you know, the, the Buddha, uh, the Buddha was raised in tremendous privilege. He, you know, his parents had been giving prophecies that if he came in contact with suffering too much, he was going to be a sage <laughs> rather than a great ruler. And they wanted option number two, great ruler. <laughs> and so they protected him. So he had no encounters at all with suffering. And then some of you know the story goes, you know, at the age, I think, of 29, he went um, by maybe curiosity outside the palace and on successive days met uh, an old man. He had not seen anyone who was old. He saw a sick man. He had never seen sickness. He met, he saw a corpse. He had never seen any signs of death. And then he saw a wandering uh, yogi or, or monk. He had never been aware of that. He was shook to his core, disoriented. And he said, I cannot live in this life anymore. And he went off wandering for six years, continually not finding what he was looking for being disoriented, going through at times extremely painful physical experiences. And I think there are aspects of this which have some parallel uh, to the dark night. He nearly died a number of times. This is not always brought out in talks about his awakening. But he had a very, you know, it's a very, very hard period for six years, continual doubt, am I really finding what I want, away from everything he knew. And of course, some of you know he eventually, at a certain point of time, um, gives up the, the extreme path of being ascetic 
and sits down with tremendous will by the Bodhi tree and comes to awakening. That's the story. But there are all these elements where he doesn't, uh, he goes through very, very hard times. So I think there are elements of a dark night in that story. They're not usually brought out quite in that way. And then I'll, I'll just say that the, um, the main reference point in Buddhist practice for the dark night that, that I see, which I've also experienced, is that of somehow having openings to certain kinds of insights that are too much for one's system or too much for one's understanding. So they kind of shake you. you know? And sometimes it can be an opening to, uh, particularly through concentration, through the way that things are changing all the time. Our usual conceptual mind keeps us in a way um, ignorant of the way that things are changing. But when sometimes in retreats, people can have deep experiences of the way things are changing, of impermanence, and also of the lack of solidity of everything. We seem to have a solid world. Meditative experiences can open one up to that. And if they're not, you know, if they're not um, integrated well, they can be disorienting. And people can go off for periods of time. There's a project that some of you may know about called the uh, Dark Knight Project, led by a, uh, I believe, a, I think she's an MD. Uh, or is she a psychologist? Or I forget. Yeah, anyway, she, uh, uh, Willoughby Britton. Some of, anyone know her work? I think some of you have, have looked into that. She has a project that's based at Brown University called the Dark Knight Project. And she's interviewed and sometimes housed uh, people who have had very, very difficult meditative experiences that have sort of led them into a dark night that sometimes lasts for several years. I think, I think in one interview she said the average length of the dark night of the people she interviewed was three or four years. Right? And so, again, often this is from, you know, there's a, um, let's see, this is what I said, the most common sense is when there are deep experiences or insights, such as into impermanence or emptiness, or the relativity of self-identity that can be disorienting or destabilizing because they cannot be well integrated or brought into daily life. And there's um, one example came from a teacher named Shinzen Young. It's called falling into the pit of the void, you know, which again is somehow seeing into having actually deep authentic insights but not being able to handle them into, into something like impermanence or emptiness. And again, I have a longer example. Um, in some of you may know there's a, you know, Spirit Rock really is in many ways guided by the teachings of Mahasi Sayadaw from Burma, who gives us our main way of practicing mindfulness. And I'll just summarize this briefly rather than going, I have slides going into a lot of detail. But essentially, in his model of development, there's a period, again, where one sees more carefully how everything is arising and passing. Concentration deepens. One has the, these insights and one goes through a period sometimes when one, oh, the only thing that one's seeing is everything moment to moment disappearing. I don't know if anyone has had those kind of experiences. They occur somewhat predictably at certain depths of practice. And everything is disappearing and it's frightful. And I, I know from my own experience just being, whoa, you know, how am I going to 
you know, go shopping. <laughs> right? Look at that. Everything's just disappearing all the time. How, how do I cook? How can I even say an ordinary hello? You know, like, oh. <laughs> it's kind of like that. And so the, uh, you know, and it actually can get, it gets worse because one is just in, in this model, in this actually quite detailed and clear model, there's a sense of fear and there's a sense of being trapped in misery. That, and the solution in this tradition is to keep on practicing and eventually one comes through it. That's not what we're going to be suggesting generally for the dark night, but in certain, certain meditatively induced dark nights, that can be skillful. Okay, so maybe, maybe I'll stop there rather than go into the detail and I'll have, if I present, if I put this like maybe on Dharma seed, it'll have the detail. Okay. Can I have the mic? Because I'd rather... Uh, we're not using the mic. That one we can use, though, the big one. Uh, I don't... I I think like he, I my interpretation of what he said was, no, don't, 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 don't use any mics. Use <laughs> he said either. Yeah, don't, don't use, use either. Don't use either? Right. Don't use either? Right. Yeah. All right. Good thing I sing. Okay. Uh, I'll just project. So what we're going to be doing... Uh, and then just, again, if you can't hear me, just wave. I'll be, um, I'm going to be giving a little bit of guidance here. We're going to be breaking up into groups and doing a little bit of sharing in small groups. So for this first part, if you could just self-organize into groups of four, so maybe turn to the people around you um, and form up little groups of four people. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.